Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The Bowery Boys episode 147, The Armory Show of 1913. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo's editors inspect and recommend the best budget hotels in Europe. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young with a solo show for you this week at the beginning of 2013. And I hope you're in the mood for a little scandal, as we'll be spending some time with some of the ugliest offenses to mankind ever perpetrated by the human hand, blasphemous, morally repugnant works of filth. Well, at least if you take the words of mortified New York journalist 100 years ago, it was a month-long exhibition that would have had P.T. Barnum tipping his hat. We're talking about the Armory Show of 1913, or the International Exhibition of Modern Art, as it was officially called, Possibly the most buzzed about, most written about exhibit in New York City history. This display, which took place at the 69th Regiment Armory from February 17th to March 15th, 1913, is the first significant show of American and European modern art in the United States, a loud and auspicious introduction of modernism into the end of the Gilded Age. Today, if you were to reassemble the show, gather the 1,600-odd pieces of art together, you would literally have to spend billions of dollars. But you don't need to be an art history student to appreciate the impact of the show. After all, I'm not an art historian. We're going to look at the Armory show from the perspective of its impact on American culture, how New Yorkers appreciated and used art in social settings. To get to the heart of what really makes this show so historically important we also have to backtrack a bit and discuss exactly what it was about the show that made it so shocking to New Yorkers in 1913. So allow me to introduce you to a few abstract blurs, a radical reconfiguring of the human body, and most of all, a nude on a staircase. So that, of course, was a selection from The Rite of Spring by Igor Stravinsky, which in May of 1913, so the same year that we're going to be talking about here, the dancer Nijinsky transformed into his own little modern dance revolution on a stage in Paris. So the same year as the events of this show. Now, before we get to modernism, of course, we need to get to the armory. 
So the scene of this episode's cultural war on the senses, the 69th Regiment Armory, is located on a city block bounded by 25th and 26th Streets, Lexington Avenue to the east and Park Avenue to the west, so just a few blocks from both Gramercy Park and Madison Square Park. The concept of military armories in the city might seem a little odd now, but New York was actually required by law after the Civil War to provide space for military training and equipment. Many of the early armories in New York were built to resemble medieval-like fortresses, such as the oldest existing New York armory at Park Avenue and 66th Street, today called the Park Avenue Armory. Today, it's very well known, actually, for highly divisive art shows. I guess art and armory make strange, unique bedfellows in New York City. The 69th Regiment Armory at Lexington N26, which was built for New York's legendary Irish regiment, the Fighting 69th, is completely different from all the others, as it was completed in 1906 during New York's Beaux-Arts architectural craze. So, of course, basically tons of ornamentation and grandiosity. It was built by the brothers Richard and Joseph Hunt, the sons of New York's master architect Richard Morris Hunt. Their father designed the grand facade for the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and the Met will figure into our story here in just a second. The 69th Armory has a grand entrance facing Lexington and a huge arched drill shed that takes up the rest of the block. Today, as a national landmark, it's still home to the 69th Regiment, a monument to their decades of military glory and a memorial to those who have fallen in the line of duty. It's still a very active building for the infantry, actually, just as something very recently that happened on one of the days after Hurricane Sandy I was walking through Midtown and decided to walk down Lexington, and it was quite chilling to see dozens of big military vehicles lined up here right in front of the armory, while, of course, the city around it by this time was completely without power. Throughout the years, a great many events have been held at this venue, from indoor marathon races in 1910 to the Victoria's Secret Fashion Show in 2011. It even played host to the New York Knicks during the 1950s. But even with models and lingerie on its slate, the 1913 Armory Show is still considered the most notorious event to ever be held at this hallowed military hall. To understand how so many people could be scandalized by an art show, we need to set the stage here a little bit and discuss how New Yorkers interacted with art in daily life in the years leading up to the show. In New York's pre-Civil War years, you didn't really have significant public places that were exclusively devoted to the exhibition of painting. I mean, you certainly had displays at universities and art schools, and you might have individual artists hosting their paintings at social clubs here or there. Barnum's American Museum, Niblo's Garden, and these popular entertainments of this type, well, they would show paintings, but in most cases, it was the subjects of the art that were the draw, not the art themselves. Crowds came to be wowed by the large mural of Noah's Ark, for instance, but were rarely concerned with the mural's craftsmanship. This was true with the craze of photography as well. People visited photographic galleries up and down Broadway in the 1850s and 1860s, but it was the novelty of the images themselves that they were admiring. By the 1870s, art began to be seen as a way to educate the vastly growing city, to lift society up, create a moral fiber. And so those of the wealthy classes, those who owned rooms of European paintings and early American landscapes, they began farming out their collections as a way to improve the status of their city. In 1872 came the first Fifth Avenue gallery of what would become the Metropolitan Museum of Art, pulled together from the classical collections of city elites and formed to develop, quote, the cultivation of good taste. 
unquote. The art gathered by New York's wealthiest was almost all by European masters. Pieces of antiquity, mixed perhaps with early American portraiture and landscapes and patriotic material such as the Mets' Washington crossing the Delaware. By the start of the 20th century, you even had a touch of Impressionism creeping in, perhaps. But for the most part, everything was traditional, definitely predictable, certainly stayed. But radical things were happening in the arts and letters by the end of the 19th century with the emergence of modernism, which is this notion of breaking out of standard subject matter and rendering words and images in entirely unheard of ways. Modernism flourished in Europe at this time. The first to take note in New York, of course, were the artists and the writers of Greenwich Village, who crafted their own version of American modernism. The most well-known of European modernist painters like Pablo Picasso and Henri Matisse, Paul Cezanne, all made their first appearance in New York in a small private gallery that sprang up not in the village, actually, but at 291 Fifth Avenue, the gallery owned by photographer Alfred Stieglitz. An artist in his own right, Stieglitz used his gallery first to display artistic forms of photography, then later some of this radical new modernist art. By this time, America had its own modernist paintings, in particular a group of men collectively known at the time as The Eight, or later The Ashcan School, named for their particular subject matter that was in a realist style. And when I say real in this case, I mean prostitutes over princesses and dirty streets over cathedrals. Real New York, as they might say. They were first displayed together in 1908 at the Macbeth Gallery at 455th Avenue, right next to the site of the New York Public Library today. The group's de facto leader was the feisty art teacher by the name of Robert Henry. Now, two of my absolute favorite painters of New York City life were also a member of this Ashcan school, John Sloan and George Bellows. Another member was notable realist painter of the day, Arthur B. Davies, who will figure in very strongly into our story here in a second. There had been a couple attempts to mount larger, attention-grabbing modernist shows here in New York meant to bring mainstream attention to these American artists. One such massive exhibition actually debuted on March 26, 1911. Unfortunately, on the day before came the Triangle Factory Fire, which killed 146 workers, and so obviously this dampened enthusiasm for a modernist art show and everything else in the city at that particular time. The next year, on January 12, 1912, 25 American modernists and their admirers formed the Association of American Painters and Sculptors with the explicit purpose of holding a massive celebration of avant-garde art. Most of the members of this group, the eight, were members of the association, so it might make sense that Robert Henry, their unofficial leader here, would become the president and guide them into a new future. Well, Henry, the oldest of this particular group, was considered a bit passé by some of the newer members, and so he was passed over in favor of Arthur B. Davies, who I mentioned earlier. Davies took the reins and expanded the group's purpose. So yes, what would become the Armory Show would celebrate the American movement, but he wanted to make it even larger. He wanted to energize it with European counterparts to rattle the locals, and perhaps he had probably already guessed that European painters would actually make better box office. They would prove actually to be the key to the show's success, and not everybody would be happy with this. While a board of association members spent months selecting the American entrance, Davies and Brooklyn board illustrator Walt Kuhn headed to Paris to begin gathering the hottest and most provocative modern artists available. They landed, as one is wont to do in Paris in 1912, 
in the salon of Leo and Gertrude Stein. Gertrude, the American writer and prolific art collector, seen as the ultimate American tastemaker. With her guidance and the help of art lecturer Walter Posh, the men would visit private collections and artist workshops throughout Europe. Preparation for the art show involved bruising the egos of dozens of artists. The selection process was so strict that several renowned artists of the day were rejected, including the work of a young Edward Hopper. Well, they loosened up the selection process near the end here, so that Hopper was allowed to enter one teeny tiny painting of a sailboat. We'll get to that sailboat in a second. Some association members were so dissatisfied with the direction and the decisions of the armory board that they quit altogether. Such as the thoroughly annoyed sculptor Gutzen Borglam, who went on a quarter of a century later to carve Mount Rushmore. So, on April nineteenth, nineteen ninety-five, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC. Hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book, the Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham. Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers: The Underground Railroad early and ad-free right now. On Wondery Plus. The association, looking for a home for the Armory Show here, after looking at Madison Square Garden 
as a possible venue, the association locked up a venue just a couple blocks away, the 69th Regiment Armory. Neatly situated, by the way, between the village and the money delete of Upper Fifth Avenue. The newspapers were already writing up this event months in advance, with promotion reaching near P.T. Barnum levels of hype here, creating a circus-like atmosphere around the show. New Yorkers who may have otherwise ignored news about wacky alternative art finally stood up and took notice. Now, one big reason, of course, was the money financing this event. You may have asked by now, how is it that a bunch of artists, in this case, starving artists, how could they put on such an ornate, well-publicized show? How did they pay for it? Arthur Davis, for instance, well, he put a property as collateral to help pay for the show. But for the most part, most of the better-known artists had wealthy benefactors. And in this case, most of those deep pocketbooks were owned by women. On top of Gertrude Stein, contributions were made by Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney, who would later form her own permanent collection, the eccentric Mabel Dodge, known for her renowned Fifth Avenue Artist Salon, and Lily Bliss and Abby Aldrich Rockefeller, art collectors who would, many years later, of course, form the Museum of Modern Art. So the Armory Show, which would end up featuring over 1,600 pieces of artwork, while mostly the work of male artists was sizably funded by women. Of course, we're talking here very, very wealthy women, some of them from connected New York families, but it underscores a new venue where women were finding influence and power in New York, in the same decade, of course, in which they would finally receive the right to vote. The Armory Show opened February 17, 1913, and ran for a month to sold-out crowds the entire time. Lines of limousines and carriages, an amusing mix of horses and automobiles, lined Lexington Avenue, bringing VIPs to the show. It was open from 10 in the morning to 10 at night, 25 cents entry, except in the mornings when it would be $1 for these so-called leisurely viewing, so you could take your time. And of course, it was more expensive, so the riffraff wasn't getting in. By the way, $1 is about $25 today, and that's kind of the suggested price for a few museums in the city today, just saying. So let's imagine ourselves pulled up here in a Packard limousine. We brush by the crowds, walk up the steps of the armory. The first thing you'll notice is organizers have made an effort to disguise some of the military trappings of the armory with evergreen tree branches and ornate folding screens festooned with wildlife. You might notice Davies himself peering from behind one of these screens, always taking note of people's reactions. Already, you can hear the echoes of shocked crowds in distant galleries and the sound of the 69th Regimental Marching Band echoing in the air. The drill hall of the armory was partitioned into 18 separate galleries, fashioned with walls of plain burlap. It was in this first gallery, devoted to American works, that you saw the first controversial piece, a sculpture called White Slave by sculptress Abistenia St. Leger Eberl, depicting an auctioneer and a child being sold into the sex trade. Now, when the Armory Show moved to Chicago a few months later, this piece was actually investigated by a censure committee for being, quote, too realistic a portrayal of greed and lust. Now, if you weren't in any hurry to get to the most outrageous pieces later on, you probably strolled through the four American galleries to your right, the least controversial rooms, I would have to say. It was here, by the way, that you would have seen Edward Hopper's little sailboat painting. Since many of the artists in the show were living in New York, they sometimes skulked around their own works, observing the audience reaction. 
That's what Hopper would be doing. You would also quickly notice that some other artists and critics, perhaps, had come with the express purpose of mocking everything. Now, luckily for Hopper, his painting grabbed the eye of a wealthy textile merchant and was one of the few American pieces sold for, get this, $250. But as would become increasingly apparent, you probably didn't come here to see the American art. You wanted to see the scandalous European art. So you race to the large Gallery H in the back, devoted to new and some would say garish French paintings. This is what awaits you there. Quote, artistic murder, pictorial arson, total degeneracy of color, contumacious abuse of title. All phrases used to describe the work of Henri Matisse, represented here in several works. People were shocked, horrified, by the artist's 17 works here, with his abstract depictions of the human form. Henry Matisse was later lampooned with the name Henry Hair Mattress. When the show moved to Chicago, Matisse was actually put on trial, symbolically, for his crimes. When Matisse, back in Europe, heard of the reactions to his work, he reportedly pleaded, quote, Tell the American people that I am a normal man, that I am a devoted husband and father, that I go to the theater, unquote. Nearby were sculptures by Brancusi, including the primitive-inspired piece called The Kiss, two stone figures in an eternal embrace, considered by some, quote, too comical for commentary. Now, if you manage to make it through this room without smelling salt, beware, for the most notorious room lay to your left, Gallery I. The press called it the Chamber of Horrors, a room of convention-defying European art in the Cubist style. Once word got out about this show and about this room, many ran straight for this gallery. It was a badge of pride for New Yorkers to have seen these monstrous articles in person. The room became so crowded, people crammed into the gallery, that it almost became impossible to even see the works in question. The star of the Armory show here, the star of this room, was a brownish canvas affixed with abstract shapes tumbling down the canvas, a work created by the painter Marcel Duchamp called Nude Descending a Staircase Number 2. The canvas depicts a blurred, fluid movement of a human form, almost as though you're watching a piece of celluloid. The art critic for the New York Times called it, quote, an explosion in a shingle factory, quickly becoming the most derided of all the art at the Armory Show. According to Life magazine, quote, 10,000 angry critics wrote 10,000 interpretations of the picture without ever finding the nude or the stairs. Nearby were other equally shocking pieces by Duchamp's two older brothers. And perhaps because there was a fetching portrait of the trio right next to the artwork, they became the most talked about and most popular participants of the Armory Show. The other contributor to the Chamber of Horrors here was Francis Picabia, another Cubist painter whose beautiful canvas of abstract colored shapes were given seemingly unrelated titles such as Dances at the Spring. Critics thought maybe this particular piece was unfinished. Picabia was actually in New York at this time and gave interviews to the press allegedly explaining his work, yet seeming only to confuse people even more. Picabi and Duchamp ate up so much of the press that people found the five Picassos that were also in the room only quietly revolting in comparison. Now, as you may have picked up, the European art was greatly overshadowing the reception of the American pieces. 
For instance, remember our friend Robert Henry, the leader of the Ashcan artists. Well, in another room, he actually had a rather striking nude painting displayed here at the Armory—an actual nude woman, a very realistic nude, shall we say. But so many people rushed past this actual nude painting to take in Duchamp's virtual shingle-esque nude that Henry was enraged. Later, under a pseudonym, he even wrote a letter to the New York Evening Sun, complaining about the show's lack of focus. Not that there wasn't great work from American painters here. It was in Gallery L that you could find George Bellow's famous boxing paintings and John Sloan's epic images of New York's underside and squalor. But a bulk of the attention was turned to European galleries like those in the center of the Armory, Gallery P, with its vivid displays of nature's ferocity, courtesy Henri Rousseau, or the two artists dominating Gallery Q, Paul Cezanne and Vincent Van Gogh, or even the man in the final gallery here, Gallery R. Paul Gauguin, with his paintings of Tahitian natives, a decorator tainted with insanity, cried one critic. The Armory Show put all of these artists we now consider iconic painters, put them all on the map for American audiences. A mock Armory Show was held by the so-called Academy of Misapplied Art up in Midtown at the Lighthouse School for the Blind, featuring such parody work as food descending a staircase and. Emotions of a lady at sixty-three on roller skates. Many of these painted by children. The former president Theodore Roosevelt, still smarting from his defeat for the presidency the previous year as head of the Bull Moose Party, well, Roosevelt himself chimed in here, suggesting, quote, "Now and then, one of this kind with enough money will buy a Cubist picture or a picture of a misshapen nude woman, repellent from every standpoint." Unquote. A sucker born every minute. Roosevelt seemed to be saying, to harken back to P.T. Barnum here again, a great many paintings were indeed sold over the course of the show, but most of them were European works. But as a cultural event, the Armory was a bona fide success. Wanamaker's department store outfitted their windows with Cubist-style dresses. The tenor Enrico Caruso made a guest appearance one day, drawing parodies of paintings for delighted audiences. The show was sold out all the way to its final day, March fifteenth. When the doors shut on that final day in celebration, everyone working on the show got into a gigantic samba line and snaked its way through every single gallery. As I alluded to earlier, a version of the show would be packed up and shipped to Chicago, where it received an even greater, more flabbergasted response. By the summer, it then transferred to Boston. Over a quarter of a million people saw the show in some form among these three exhibitions. Now that may not seem like much in modern terms. For instance, the Met's recent retrospective of the work of clothing designer Alexander McQueen attracted over six hundred thousand people. But this was a really large number for the day, and you can be sure that most of those quarter million people ran home to tell their friends what they had seen. The Armory Show succeeded in springing modern art into the cultural forefront. When the Metropolitan Museum purchased one piece that was featured in the show, a painting by Cezanne, this gave an implicit nod of approval to the modernist movement, and it opened the floodgates of private collectors and smaller museums who suddenly found an interest in modernist paintings. Modern art became a key aesthetic component to the jazz age, perfectly complementary to jazz music. Art Deco architecture and the changing fashions of women. The most radical pieces would go on to influence future New York artists. By the 1940s and 50s, New York-based artists like Jackson Pollock and Willem de Kooning and other masters of abstract expressionism were creating works of art that made nude descending a staircase seem like a modest, quaint little thing. 
Now, I'm recording this show early in the year 2013, and beginning next month, there will probably be a great many museums and galleries revisiting the themes and the history of the Armory Show. Please visit our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, and I will try and round up some of these anniversary shows that will be happening throughout the year, and I'll put them in the post that's relating to this particular show. Since this really is a podcast that needs is begging for some visuals, actually, I'll be posting some of the show's more scandalous works on the blog, with links, of course, where you can go see some of the originals in person. By the way, if you're not already on there, please check us out on Facebook, and you can also check me out on Twitter at BoweryBoys. Thank you very much for joining me through this tour through one of the more unusual exhibits in New York City history. Tom will be back for our next show. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. <laughs>